Well, if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 1, I think this will be less a, a sermon tonight, more just a character sketch, it's just uh, some observations, and then um, about a character here in Kings, and then um, just some, some thoughts around this. We, we've, some of the men have been doing a Old Testament survey on and off for a l- l- number of months, and it's always a great blessing. You're always invited to come to that. We do that periodically, usually on second and fourth, but, but that usually is the wrong word, um, as, as we can gather. And uh, so we've made our way to, to 1 Kings. It'll be the, it'll be the, the, look, the book that we're looking at next, next Sunday, Lord willing. And uh, some of the things in these, these uh, studies are just so rich and needed that I can't just keep them contained there. I want to I share them with you as well. And this, was, this is one in, that just in particular uh, really hit home uh, with me, and I wanted to share some thoughts uh, from this with you. So I pray this will be a blessing um, and that you will, you will glean from God's Word. Um, I want to look at a figure who is probably um, the, the, the person from Scripture that you most benefit from on a daily basis. If you're a parent or if you've been a parent, you've probably used uh, this individual more than any other um, uh, individual in Scripture to teach your children from. You probably glean just in your daily life every day on some thought that he shared with you. I'm talking about Solomon, of course. Solomon, who wrote Proverbs. I was just sitting there in the song service and thinking about just uh, miscellaneous Proverbs that came to mind that just jumped um, into my memory. Just so many uh, daily, uh, practical, um, wise, uh, really brilliant observations of life um, that we would do good to heed. Um, from him, he just got it um, from the very beginning. Uh, he he talks about that the the very beginning of, of 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 wisdom is the fear of God. And he in chapter one he of Proverbs he he makes this observation of this person who is really not listening to the voice of wisdom. And he just says, "Listen, this is gonna the voice is gonna come. It's gonna come. And it's gonna come. It's gonna faithfully come. But eventually, it's gonna stop speaking, and you're gonna be eating of the fruit of your foolishness if you do not heed uh, wisdom." He cries out to his son uh, to listen to the voice of wisdom. Well. When we find our way to 1 Kings, one of the reasons I love 1 Kings and its depiction of Solomon is that it's this just a really uh, concise look. It's only 11 chapters in terms of its, of, its, uh, of its covering of Solomon's life. So in just one sitting, not too long of a sitting, you can read through uh, the, um, the life of Solomon. If you start in 1 Kings 1 and you read through 1 Kings 11, you'll get the whole life of Solomon in those 11, 11 chapters. So let me encourage you to do that this week. It would be beneficial for you to just read the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings and read about the life of Solomon. And so the, the, best, um, the best way, I know how to go through this tonight, is just to walk through each chapter uh, very quickly and then, and then land on chapter 11. Because that's where we want to go is to where Solomon is in chapter 11. But just to place ourselves um, a little bit, um, if you were, and this is the way this survey that we're reading does, he just, he just captures the, 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 the book with one word. He says, First Kings is about decline. Okay, so if First Kings, and, and it certainly follows that trajectory, and the author of the survey that we're, that we're looking at uh, just observes in the very beginning that a very, a, very cha- a very small change in direction can lead to a major trajectory change, right? So a very small, a very small move 
can lead uh, way, way, way in, uh, off into a path that we never would have uh, of, of, of thought. And that's exactly how First Kings is set up. This is just a history of the nation of Israel, and it begins in the very height of the glory of Israel. And it ends in um, some of the, uh, just a continuation of the worst. And, uh, and, and, and you can see, as when, you, when you finish First Kings, that this is not going to end well. And, and sure enough, it doesn't end well. Eventually, both, uh, both uh, Israel and Judah are taken into captivity. Eventually, you can read some of the prophets where God writes this decree of divorcement against them for their rebellion and adultery. And, of course, it, it just depicts the great desperation of our hearts and the great need for a king and a prophet and a priest who will be after the heart of God. And that appears in the person of Jesus Christ. So all of the history of Israel is pointing us to our need for a, for a prophet, a priest, and a king um, who is otherworldly, unlike David and unlike Solomon and unlike Ahab and unlike even Hezekiah and Josiah. The good ones we think about, we need someone better. We need a greater king uh, to rule over our hearts and to lead us in true paths of righteousness and to bring us into his kingdom that will never end and will never be tainted or corrupted. And of course, every king of Israel was tainted. But if you were just to just to look at Israel um, at the beginning of Solomon's reign, and then especially at the end of Solomon's reign, one could only conclude that this is a very secure uh, nation. Um, the glory of Israel was unsurpassed when uh, Solomon was at the height of his reign. In fact, as we're going to get to chapter 10, we're going to see the Queen of Sheba come and just um, it'd be so awed by the glory and the wisdom of Solomon, that she would want to contribute to it. Um, she just, let me just give. Let me just give something in tribute to your great glory. And that's uh, the glory of Israel under Solomon's reign. So financially, Israel was in great shape during Solomon's reign. Um, uh, just politically, they were in great shape. You don't see the same threats that David had to deal with on a continual basis under Solomon's reign. They were secure. David had done his job of setting up the kingdom to be uh, secure and to be lasting. And uh, there aren't the, the constant threats of the Philistines and other nations against Israel during Solomon's reign. So they were secure. Their, their borders were secure. Their finances were in good condition. Their king was incredibly wise. Um, and, and wouldn't that be nice to be in a land where, where you didn't wake up and read the news and say, this policy is insane. What are they doing? Um, but this good policy, um, uh, good management, um, good financial condition, and good position uh, geopolitically. And you go, well, what in the world could go wrong? And that's why this, this, this is such a gripping tale and one that we would do very well to heed very carefully. Just think about all the... the, the uh, the data in Scripture that's consumed by Solomon. Uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, Song of Solomon, Kings, uh, Chronicles. Um, this is, uh, Scripture wants us to zero in on this time and make sure we understand this time and this man very well. Okay, so let's just, um, you know we're heading towards decline, but let's just enjoy uh, the gifting and the goodness of God towards Solomon. Now, 
God was gracious in, in, in Solomon even existing in the first place, wasn't he? Because Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. And you'll remember that the first son of David and Bathsheba had to die. Because David and Bathsheba should have never been together to start with. But God is long-suffering. And God is merciful. And, and from, from, from some of the worst sadness and the, and the worst ruin, God uh, can raise up uh, blessings that we don't deserve Blessings that we cannot contain. So it's really amazing that Solomon becomes this glorious king, this wise king, and he's the product of, of uh, the, the marriage of, of David and, and Bathsheba. And so um, let's just walk through the first ten chapters really quickly. I'm just going to do a, a, just a, kind of a sentence or a couple sentences overview of what each chapter is about so you, that you can see sort of this building glory of Solomon and Israel under Solomon's reign. So in chapter 1... Uh, Solomon just comes to the throne. Now the way he comes to the throne is not without controversy. It's not easy. But it's clear that God has marked this man as the man that will be the king. That will enjoy the promises that God had made to David uh, of his kingdom and his son being, uh, being that which would rule Israel in this everlasting kingdom. So um, David has another son. His name is Adonijah. He wants to be the king. Uh, he plots to become the king. I won't go through the story there, but his plot is, 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 uh, is not successful. It's foiled. Nathan and other faithful men are faithful to tell David. And Solomon is announced as king. And Adonijah, run, Adonijah runs away knowing that he is about to be in a lot of trouble. And so Solomon is crowned as king, the rightful ruler of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 1. So that's a blessing uh, uh, that he was brought to be the king. He's clearly marked as the right king, and he's the one that has the blessing of David. In chapter 2, um, David is dying. Uh, we, we looked at chapter 2 in quite a lot of detail back when we were doing the series on manhood. This is where David is charging his son. What a, what a scene. This, this man who has... Um, Enjoyed uh, being a man after God's own heart. David is a remember that a man after God's own heart. So David's heart was drawn towards God. David had his had had his many um, uh, much sadness and grief and consequences for his own sin with Bathsheba. But in God's mercy, as David recounts in Second um, Second uh, Samuel chapter twenty three, he says, "My house is not so with God." Um, but God has, has made with me an everlasting covenant. And, and that's ordered in all things and, and sure. And so David's hope was in the covenant that God had made with him, this covenant to keep a king over Israel who will be a righteous king and a good king and will reign forever. And so this man is now dying. And he sees that his son is the favored one of God and the blessed of God. So David makes this glorious charge to his son to be strong, to show himself a man, to keep the charge of the Lord his God, to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that they might prosper in all that he does and whithersoever he would turn himself. And so David is going to die in this chapter, and David is going to bless his son Solomon and charge his son Solomon in this chapter. So this is a, it's really a wonderful chapter, isn't it? Uh, the, the old, the old uh, uh, king handing over the mantle to the coming up king that he has such high hopes for. And then as the chapter continues, it's like God is just clearing the path for Solomon to be able to do this in an in a un, un, um, unhindered way. 
Solomon, there's nothing that's going to stand in your way of keeping the Lord's ways and bringing his glorious kingdom to prosper. So there are three rivals to Solomon. One of them was Adonijah. He didn't last very long, did he? He just could not behave. So Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and he begs Bathsheba to, to, uh, to, to help him get into Solomon's good graces. Well, Solomon sees, he's wise, he sees right through that plot. And Adonijah, um, he goes the way of all the earth, right? And then Joab, who had been a, uh, he'd been a servant of David's, but also a thorn in David's side. There's a lot of complications with Joab, and we'll go into tonight. But Joab, he also is sent the way of all the earth to get, be, be gotten rid of. And then the last one is Shimei. Remember him? Shimei was the one who was cursing David, and then you dog, and that had mercy on Shimei, but Shimei just could not stay out of his own way, and he went the way of all the earth. So three, uh, three thorns, three potential thorns in Solomon's side are eliminated in chapter 2. So again, he's been blessed by his, by his father, his arrivals and, and thorns are eliminated in chapter 2. Well, in chapter 3, this is a glorious chapter, isn't it? Chapter 3, Solomon, uh, God appears to Solomon and says, Solomon, I'm here to bless you. Um, so ask from me what you will. And in this moment, Solomon, humble man, um, wisely seeks wisdom. And so God blesses Solomon with wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to to be able to see things as they are. And then to apply uh, the right um, analysis. And then the right uh, prescription for how to deal with the way that things really are. Just to be able to see things as they are. What a blessing that is. What a blessing it is to not be blind. Um, to have knowledge and understanding. Um, uh, other words, uh, perspective and perception. Um, to be able to distinguish what a blessing these, 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 these are, aren't they? It, it's so very sad when we see someone that's, not able, that's, that's naive. Um, Solomon describes a naive one in chapter 7, I think it is, where this, this, this young, naive person just foolishly walks into a situation that's going to end with a dart striking through their liver. So they're going to, it's going to end in their own death because they just could not see things as they are. And, and we, we get to deal with that with people, don't we, sometimes? Where we just, why can't they see? Why can't they truly see things as they are? Well, Solomon is blessed by God with, with sight, with wisdom, to be able to see things as they are and understand. And then just to illustrate this, in a move that just blows away, probably Solomon, but blows away the people with the glory of wisdom, Solomon is immediately presented with a difficulty that no one, uh, the wisest, would not be able to figure out. And that is the two harlots who have one living child among them. Remember this? And they are brought to Solomon, and they are doing a tug of war with this one living baby. And what in the world do you do with that? And Solomon, who's been blessed by God with this heavenly wisdom, immediately, immediately is able to discern and solve the riddle, and solve the problem, and the people just glory in Solomon's wisdom, and it's actually pretty simple, wasn't it? He just said, okay, let's just cut the baby in half. Well, who in the world would ever have the wisdom or the guts to say that? Well, Solomon was blessed. He says, let's cut the baby in half, and immediately the problem was solved. Because the one whose heart was drawn towards the child, the one who truly was mother, was more about the child's welfare than she was about winning the battle. So Solomon could see this is the mother of the child. This is the kind of wisdom that's going to mark Solomon's reign. This is the kind of wisdom 
that Solomon has at his disposal. This is the kind of wisdom that Proverbs has written, isn't it? Well, that's chapter 3. In chapter 4, when you see Solomon, um, we see the administration, really, of Solomon's uh, his, his, his palace. And so I won't read it, but there was a... It was it was, um, it, it, there was it was ledgered out. It was very carefully administrated. Um, you see exactly how many uh, oxen are, are 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 killed every day to feed the people of the palace, and how many um, uh, sheep and roebucks and fatted fowl. And he had he had dominion over the whole region, um, Judah and Israel. Verse twenty five. Listen to this: Judah and Israel dwelt safely. This is a great one. Every man under his vine and under his fig trees. The idea is there was no need for the welfare system um, just because Judah was blessed. Solomon was a good king and he, he, uh, he administrated things with great wisdom so that everybody just took care of themselves. Um, on your own land, your own vine, your own fig tree, there was sufficient supply. There was no great need. As for Solomon himself, he was just abundant in riches with 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen and these officers providing victual for King Solomon and for all that came to this table every man in his month they lacked listen this they lacked nothing this is in verse 27 verse 29 says uh, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart even as a sand that is on the seashore, and he's describing he's a benevolent king, so a king that you that you you desired to to live under, because his 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 heart was enlarged towards the people, even as a sand of the seashore, and his wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the children of Egypt. So they weren't tempted to to go to Egypt for help because remember this is a continual problem with uh, Israel. When they would get in trouble, they would be um, they would be threatened. Well, they weren't threatened. He had 40,000 chairs for horses. Um, they weren't hungry. They, like, they weren't like uh, when, uh, uh, when jo- uh, Jacob's sons had to go to Egypt because they weren't hungry because they had plenty of food, a vine, a victory for everybody. Um, they, they weren't needy of, of a, of a, to go to the uh, idols of the Moabites because they had the wisdom of Solomon. His wisdom was better. He spake 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. And there came, this is verse 34, there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. In chapter 5, he, he does what he's been wanting to do all along, which David had talked about, David had desired. Solomon uh, begins the preparation for the building of the temple. So he hasn't, he hasn't forgotten God. In fact, in chapter 3, let me just read this in chapter 3, I think it's verse, uh, verse 3, it says, Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. But he loved the Lord. So Solomon had a desire to, to please the Lord and to do things for God. And so he builds, he begins to prepare to build this temple. And he sends, off, uh, he sends to uh, uh, Hiram, who also loved David. And they begin to gather for the building of the temple of God. They gather cedar trees and fir trees and timber and, and, and all the things that will be needed for this um, this uh, this building of the temple, and I won't spend a lot of time there. But you can, it's, it's interesting to read. Really, it's neat. Just three thousand three hundred uh, officers working on this on this project. Can you imagine that? What a what a scene that must have been. This is the project to build the temple. He had um, he had. Let's see here. He had seventy thousand 
Um, let's see here. I think he had 70,000, let's say 30,000 men on this project. Uh, 10,000 a month were going to Lebanon to bring back cedar. And then they've spent two months at home, so that's pretty wise, too. You can think about that. You know, um, that's one thing today with the labor is people working out of town. Well, how do you keep them happy when they come home? So you have this system of you go out for this long, and you come back for this, 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 this long. Um, he had 70,000 bearing burdens and 40,000, uh, I'm sorry, 80,000 hewers in the mountains. So 80,000 people are working on cutting wood and shaping the wood for this work. What a scene this is. What a glorious machine. What a glorious scene. And then he commands, they bring these great stones, these great costly stones, and these huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. Wouldn't you like to see that in action? How did they move those great, huge, costly, I don't know what what the costly stones were, um, but it may tell somewhere in Scripture, I don't know off the top of my head, but can you imagine just the moving of that? They've hewed them out. They've, they've shaped them just very carefully to, to fit right in, right in place. Chapter 5. Um, in chapter 6, they build the temple. Now, there are a few hints of some things that aren't just right through here. Let me just tell you one of the things that's interesting. Um, Solomon spent seven years building the temple. Um, with this massive army of people. Um, the next chapter, chapter 7, he's building his own house. He spends 13 years building his house. So I don't know if, if, there, if, there was a, if it's a sign of something being amiss in his priorities or not, but it's just interesting. Seven years building, his, building the temple of God and 13 years building his house. And you've probably read and heard some about the glory of Solomon's, Solomon's palace and his house and, of course, the glory of Solomon's temple. But that's interesting, isn't it? So chapter 6, he builds the temple. Chapter 7, he builds his house. It's a 13-year project with a whole lot of money and a whole lot of people at his disposal to build it. Can you imagine that we talk about the Biltmore House right now? I imagine the Biltmore House was nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's house. Fascinating. Well, chapter 8 is a 66-verse chapter. Um, I would love to read chapter 8 to you. I won't do that. Um, and you'll say amen. But, but it, you should go read chapter 8 because you're going um, to see something of, of the heart of Solomon here. Um, chapter 8 is, uh, is, is, where, is where the temple is finished, is completed, and um, the Lord blesses the temple. Uh, so the Lord, the priests come out of the holy places, it's in verse 10, and the cloud fills the house of the Lord. So the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord has filled the house of the Lord. What a scene. The priests cannot even go in because the glory of the Lord is too thick or too glorious. It doesn't really tell us. They just could not go in because the glory of the Lord was there. Imagine that. Just imagine that for a moment. The glory of the Lord. We have seen some glimpses of the glory of the Lord. We have seen the, the brightness of the glory of the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ, haven't we? And, and doesn't it make you yearn for more other times when you're so filled with, with, uh, um, they're so filled with an awe at the goodness of God to you? It's as if your heart would physically burst. Um, well, that's, that's, that's what it's like to see God's glory, and the glory of God is there. What a blessing this is. The glory of the God of heaven is resting upon the nation of Israel in the house of God that Solomon has made. And the rest of the chapter is just this overflowing prayer of Solomon to God. Um, and I just want to read a few things from this. 
This is Solomon's prayers, his public prayer as the temple has been completed and this glory has come. Verse 22, Solomon stands before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation. So they're, they're listening. All this host of people who have been wowed by this man's glory, who love serving under him, who have a vine and a fig tree, so they're, they're happy, they're filled, they're sufficient. They're getting to hear the wisdom of Solomon just come forth right now. And here's what he says. He says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee. I want you to see Solomon gets it. Solomon understands there is no God like thee in heaven above or earth beneath who keep his covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. Stick, let that phrase stick with you. Who has kept with thy servant David, my father, that thou hast promised him. You're a promise-keeping God. Thou spakest with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. <laughs> You're trustworthy. There's nobody like you. Solomon understands. He really gets it. And now, verse 26, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of, and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I built it. Did Solomon have a high view of God or a low view of God? He had a high view of God. Listen, I spent seven years with, I can't remember that, it was 80,000 hewers of, of wood and all the rest of the stuff. I spent seven years building this place to speak of your glory and to have you come visit us and yet understand this is nothing. This is nothing. If I had a lifetime to build, there is not enough ingredients on the earth to truly contain your glory. Is that true? Absolutely it's true. The heaven, in other words, creation. We're just creation. And you're the creator. So all of creation, the vastness of the universe is not sufficient to contain your glory. Now, listen, we, we nod our head. That's exactly right. That's true. But don't you wish you could see that and feel that? God, you're so glorious that heaven can't contain your glory. And so he goes on and then he, 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 he repeats the same thing again. He understands how God works. He said, God, we're probably going to sin. And when we sin, please forgive us of our sins. And, and, and use your chastisement to bring us back. Verse, 25, verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and the people of Israel that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon thy land which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. Solomon understood how God works, right? God, if we, do, if we sin, you're going to chastise us to get our attention. So, Lord, help us when we sin to pray and ask forgiveness that your blessings might return to us. Solomon understood. This blows my mind. Verse 56, uh, he stands up and goes, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest to his people Israel. According to all he promised, there hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses' his servant, the Lord our God, be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us. That's his prayer. Lord, don't leave me. Don't forsake me. 
that He may incline our hearts to Him to walk in all His ways, keep His commandments, and etc., etc. So He goes on for eight days like that. For eight days. On the eighth day, He sent the people away, and they blessed, listen to this, on the eighth day, He sent the people away, this last verse, and they blessed the king and went unto their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for David his servant and for Israel his people. What a scene, isn't it? It's glorious. Now, if you see a, a nation like this, a people like this, you go, man, their finances are in good place. They, they've got the obedience thing going with the Lord. They, they've got a good a geopolitical situation. They've got good borders. They've got all good these things. We are in good shape. They are about to fall. Chapter 9. God's gracious to Solomon. God appears to Solomon right after this. As the second time he's appeared to him, he appears to him. He says, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your supplication. I've hallowed this house to put my name there forever. Mine eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And then God warns Solomon about idolatry. So Solomon, this is what's going to mess things up. Don't love something more than you love me. Don't serve anything besides me. So I've heard your prayer. I've hallowed, I've hallowed this place. Now let me just remind you, do not, do not love anything more than you love me. Don't turn to anything for your needs more than you turn for me. Well, that's the gracious of God, isn't it? Doesn't God do that in the, in the sermons that you hear on Sundays? Maybe in the, your Bible reading, God's just reminding you, let's keep our eyes in the right spot. Let's turn the right ways. That's God's grace. And then chapter 10. This is the Queen of Sheba. She comes from the south. She's heard of his fame. She comes and she comes bearing gifts. And she just says, listen, it's a true report I heard. This is verse 6 and 7. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame with which I heard. Happy, listen to this. Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king. Because God loved his people, he made you king, to do judgment and justice. And she gives the king these, this gift of gold and spices and precious stones and other things. And it begins to describe the navy that's bringing the navy he has to bring in gold and almug trees, whatever that is. And what are almug trees? I don't know. And precious stones. And he makes pillars out of these almug trees for the house of the Lord, and harps and psalteries. And oh, it just, it says, it says, There came no such almug trees nor were seen to this day. Says, You've never seen so many almug trees, is what it's saying. So we need to figure out what that is and try to get, get us home. But there were, there were plenty coming in. Okay? And then, uh, <laughs> verse 20, I'm going to read this. Um, uh, verse 19, the throne, his, his throne, the, it makes a great throne of ivory and overlays with the best gold. And the throne had six steps on the top of the throne. Listen, listen to this throne, kids. This is Solomon's throne. He had six steps to the throne. Um, the top was round behind. And there were uh, stays on either side of the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the stays. And twelve lions stood there on the one side and the other upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. Wow. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels, no styrofoam for him, were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were of pure gold. 
None were of silver. <laughs> I love that. Do you like that? No silver in my house. <laughs> That's not enough. Um, <laughs> it was listen to this. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. Like silver is nothing in his days. That's what it's saying. It's how glorious he was. For the king had at sea a navy of Tharshish with a navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tharshish bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is amazing, isn't it? So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they bring presents to him. He gathers the chariots and... Um, I just I'll stop reading there. Well, that that's uh, there's only one more chapter about Solomon. That's 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 the whole of his life almost. Yeah, there's one more chapter, chapter eleven, and in chapter eleven, I'm just going to read one verse from chapter eleven right now. It says, "And the Lord was angry with Solomon." Now there's some preceding verses it's talking about him taking some wives. Not only did he take peacocks and apes. And ivory and gold and almug trees, they took wives from all these nations. Um, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Okay, so we have spent 10 chapters of most of this sermon just talking about this incredible glory um, and this incredible riches. And so I, I want to, I one word I want to use right now is, is legacy, okay? So legacy is what you leave. It, it's, it's the mark of your life and what you leave to the next generation to continue. So it's, it's, it's something that you don't enjoy for yourself, but you, but you, 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 you prepare it for the future. Okay, and so the legacy that Solomon left, well, you would say, well, I mean, you know, people struggle with that. They're very rich. Should we leave our kids all of this money because will it, will it ruin them? Will they, will they do well with it? You hear about all these fights between families in terms of dealing with the inheritance. The legacy that Solomon leaves his children um, is that the kingdom will be ripped from his son's hands. That's the legacy. Isn't that something? The kingdom he, that God tells him here, He says, "Solomon, the kingdom. I'm going to let it. I'm going to let it survive through your reign because of your father David, not because of your sake, but your father David. But I'm going to rip it from your son's hands." Now we just read about a wealth that is unimaginable. We just laugh at it, and God says it's not even going to last one generation. Isn't that something? All because of one small change in direction. And here's another word. Gifting. When I say gifting, I mean it all. You see, wisdom And I don't know how to use this word exactly, but wisdom, if defined as perception and perspective and being able to see things as they are, is worthless. Knowledge. There's a but to this, okay, the caveat. Knowledge. 
having a clear vision of, 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 of truth. I mean, look how he saw God. He understood. But it, it's, it's worthless if the affections aren't in the right place. Okay? So he had, I mean, he, he understood. Again, he, he read, he, he wrote Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise knowledge and discretion. He wrote Proverbs 7. I remember we just mentioned that earlier about the young man who walks towards this, um, this, this uh, uh, illicit pleasure, but it will end up in striking a dart through its liver, and then he lived that out. You see, see who would you look at Scripture and say, well, who did Proverbs 7? Solomon both wrote and lived out Proverbs 7. Isn't that stunning? Stunning. All because, according to verse 9, other places too, because his heart turned from the Lord God of Israel. The heart is which? The affections. We're drawn away from God towards created things. That's what adultery is. So we can't imagine, you know, having 700... I mean, I, I hate to talk about that because it's not that we would just... <laughs> wealth and the things that, that allure us, okay? can imagine having the life of Solomon. But we can imagine loving things of creation more than we love God. You see, the, the, the key is our heart. Our heart. Judah was in a great financial situation. But they were in terrible spiritual condition. About to plunge into the decline that would end in their complete, what? Dismantling of this same power, of the, of the same structure. Complete dismantling of the temple. That's where this is going to end. All because their affections were a little bit in the wrong place. Did Solomon completely forsake God? Well, depending on how you look at it. No, in that he still was calling on the name of the Lord. He still had the temple. He built the temple for goodness sakes. But yes, if you understand this, you can't serve God and other things. There's only one throne. And only God, and God will not share His throne. God says, I am jealous of my glory. I am jealous of worship. Worship belongs to God and God alone. And so if our hearts are misdirected, everything flows from that. Out of the heart proceeds all of the issues of life. So all the knowledge, all the practice in the world will not make up for a heart that's not turned towards God and His ways. Solomon's legacy is that he, the kingdom will be ripped from his son. God will leave two tribes there because of David, his servant. But I'm going to rip it from your son. I mean, it's, it's, I think chapter 11 is far more breathtaking 
than the description in chapter 4 and 5 of his stuff that he had, isn't it? How could anyone lose that much? How could anyone who sees things the right way, understands right, be so foolish? And the answer is one spot. In fact, Solomon said himself as an old man, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep His commandments, for such is the duty of man. So I just wanted to throw that out to you, just to consider it. Just, just think about that. But don't just think about it and say, oh, wow, what a, what a spectacle. Think, God, you, you, you're a God about my heart, too. Um, you desire my heart. That's what David says in Psalm 51. Now, let me close this way. <laughs> Jesus said this. This is Jesus' claim. That Solomon's glory... Solomon's wisdom is nothing compared to Jesus' wisdom. Don't you know they hated to hear that? He says, a greater, so people would flock to see the wisdom of Solomon. And I'm telling you, a greater than Solomon is standing right in front of you. The wisdom of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, was pure, wasn't it? When Jesus says, I come to do my Father's will, it's my meat and my drink to do the will of my Father. Jesus meant that. You know how we know He meant that? Because it was the will of His Father that Jesus would give up His own life. Bloody and broken and mocked and destroyed by sinful, hateful men. And Jesus did it because Jesus' heart was pure. He came to do His Father's will. But not only was his heart pure, Jesus' legacy was far surpassing Solomon's, wasn't it? Solomon loses it in one, his son loses it. One, not even a generation, just a few years. His son loses it to another terrible man in Jeroboam. Jeroboam, Jeroboam, different people, but both terrible. Both, 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 Both had no heart for God. And Solomon loses it both ways. He sees the nation split and then both go the wrong direction. But Jesus' legacy is, I won't lose anything. I won't lose anything. All the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I shall lose nothing, he says in another place, but I will raise it up at the last day. Matthew 28 says that all authority is given, all power is given to Jesus in heaven and earth. First Corinthians 15 said that Jesus reigns over all of creation. It all belongs to Him. He loses nothing. And so, as you consider Solomon's life, if you do it honestly, you're going to say, I'm no better than Solomon. And in fact, you're going to say, he, at least he saw it the right way most of the time. And I don't even get it sometimes. So the end, of, the end of considering Solomon's life, relation to yours, is not to say, I've got to do better than Solomon. That's not it. I've got, to, I've, got, I've got to study more. I've got to read more. I've got to, I've, got to, I've got to be stronger. That's not it. You're no stronger than Solomon. I promise you that. Neither am I. But the end of it is to look to the one who is greater than Solomon, whose wisdom, whose might, whose glory, whose, 
righteousness is better than Solomon's. And to walk with him. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you're the branches. He that abideth in me, he's going to bring forth fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Aren't you grateful? There's a more glorious one than Solomon. There's one who is whose heart is better than Solomon, when his legacy is assured much more than Solomon's was, that's Jesus Christ. So let us link ourselves, let us draw near into Him. Draw near, Hebrews says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us provoke one another to love and to good works. Let us draw not unto Jesus. For He is... That's just a few uh, miscellaneous thoughts, but I I would encourage you to read those chapters, and there's a whole lot more to glean those chapters, but man, it's stunning. It is a stunning look. It's a sobering look, but it's one that's got to point us away from ourselves and point us to the one who is greater than Solomon, and that's Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you.